Well, good morning, church. It's good to be home. We had a good vacation. I'll say it, scratch that. We had a great vacation, and uh, we took two of our nephews with our family. We went out west. We'd been planning this for a couple years and saving up and looking forward to that day. And, and here's the thing. During the trip, I realized that when you're with seven people all week in a 15-passenger van in an apartment-like building when it's 110 degrees outside on the average, you can sort of get on each other's nerves. And this is a good time to talk about conflict resolution. So, praise God I was able to cultivate a dozen or so illustrations from our vacation to use for the sermon. But I'm not going to use them. Not really. We got along really well, praise God. That's called miracle. Um, no, it's called family. And um, I hope you take the time, if you haven't yet this summer, get away with your family. Get away with some friends uh, and enjoy time together in relationship. Um, a lot of stories I could share, but not today. Instead, let's open up God's word. Would you do that with me? Open up to James chapter 4. James chapter 4 as we continue uh, looking at love and war. And the conflict, not maybe resolution, but reconciliation. It's a better word to use. It's a more biblical word, a reuniting of relationships. And what does God have to say about that? Because we know today there's so much uh, conflict in, in relationships and in situations. And it seems like this world is just tugging at each other and fighting with each other all the time. So we've been spending all summer looking at this. And where do we find reconciliation? So James chapter 4, if you're there... Starting in verse 1, James gave us sort of what's behind the conflict. So let's read that, James chapter 4, starting in verse 1. What's causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it. So you fight and you wage war to take it away from them. Yeah, you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. James tells us that a lot of the conflict we have in our life is coming from where? From within. Our desires, our scheming, wanting what we want to have maybe pleasure. These desires, these things we covet, when they get blocked... It create conflict. And when conflict occurs, there's a couple of natural responses. We talked about those a few weeks ago. We said, here's the natural response. We're going to either flee and try to escape, or we're going to fight and attack. That's a natural response, right? Or how about a supernatural response? And here's the supernatural response, and that is to have the help of God. Amen? And we need that. We examined a story in Matthew in which Jesus told about a master who had a servant. The servant owed him, in modern terms, millions to billions of dollars. He forgave that servant, let him go. That servant went off and found one of his servants and who owed him thousands of dollars, and he couldn't pay him back. So he's going to put him in prison. When the master found out what this servant was doing, he brought him back and had a little discussion with him. We looked at that scripture, and what we discovered was it was a story of grace. 
The master showed grace to his servant, but his servant did not show grace to his servant. And in that story, we came to a conclusion to say, God shows us grace, tremendous grace that we don't deserve. And the question is, when God shows us so much grace, why can't we show grace to others? And we asked ourselves, how can we receive such mercy and grace from God and not allow it to affect us? It has to affect us, amen? Think about the grace that God has given you. The song we just sang, thank you for the cross. Are you thankful for that cross, church? I hope so, because without it, we do not have life eternal. We do not have a relationship reconciled with God. We have been shown grace and mercy, and that should affect us. So we look at our relationships now with other people through those same lens of grace and mercy. And we find out the gospel is not just a ticket to heaven. The gospel transforms every area of our life, including how we love others, how we forgive others, how we show grace to others. So how do we respond to conflict? Well, not by natural response, fleeing or fighting, right? Instead, we need a supernatural response. Galatians 2.20. I hope you have that marked in your Bible. We'll put it on the screen for you. You might want to write it down. This is a tremendous verse. If you can, memorize it. Put somewhere in a 3 by 5 But it says, My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So I live in this earthly body. By trusting the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what God did for us. Now his spirit resides in us. The power to forgive others, the power to show grace to others, the power to show mercy and love to others is not natural. It is a supernatural thing that we have to have from God and his spirit working through us. As I told you, the power is not in knowing God's commands. It's in living out God's commands by his spirit. So we extend God's love to others, not by trying harder, because we do that, right? I can try harder to love them. But we find out we can't on our own. So it's supernatural through Jesus Christ. God knows we will face conflict in our relationships. And he knows that only by his spirit we can respond better. So, To bring us all up to speed, we know where conflict comes from. We know how we respond to conflict. We know what God wants us and how God wants us to respond to conflict. But it doesn't stop there. So let's get real with this now, okay? Because we can show grace to people, can't we? But conflict reoccurs, doesn't it? I don't know if you've recognized this, but just because you conquer it once, it tends to come back in another place, doesn't it? It seems like conflict always popping up just when you thought you had it nailed, right? Maybe we need to take another look at why this conflict is continuing. Why is it so constant? Maybe, and this is a tough one, church, okay? Let me just start off by, before I get into this, let me start by saying this. Today's message, okay, a couple weeks ago hit me, and God's been working on this with me, okay? A lot of times that's what happens. My heart gets sort of spilled out onto you, so... When I start pointing the finger at you, understand that I've been pointing at me for quite a while, okay? So what I want to do is I want us to do this. I want us to say, maybe we are the root of the conflict. Maybe it's something going on inside of us. I think naturally it's so easy to look at somebody else and say, they're the problem, right? But what if God said, I want you to stop and I want you to look at yourself 
first. In moments of conflict, we can be so upset at the situation that we have the wrong focus. And we, we put all the fault on somebody else, don't we? Matter of fact, we minimize our, our area, our conflict by saying, well, all I said was, all I did was, it was really small compared to you, right? Grab your Bibles, turn to the book of Matthew. Head back towards the front of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 7. We, we briefly touched on this scripture in our last sermon two weeks ago. I want to come back to it and point out again. Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Read through verse 5. Let's read. Stop judging others and you will not be judged. For others will treat you as you treat them. Whatever measure you use in judging others, it will be used to measure how you are judged. Why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? And how can you think of saying, friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye, when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite. First, get rid of the log from your own eye. Then perhaps you'll see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. Jesus has been preaching here what's famously called the Sermon on the Mount. He's, he's been primarily focused in chapters 5, 6, and 7, connecting with the interior spiritual life of, of a being, of a, of a person. Our attitudes in, in giving, and prayer, and fasting, and money, materialism, worry, and anxiety. And all these things, Jesus sort of says, in all these things, they can really render a Christian to a life of, of apathetic and living. And, and so I want you to sort of let's focus on some of these things. But if we as Christians have our minds centered on these things, money, worry, fear, guess where our mind is not? On God. We're so focused on all these other things, we're not focused on who God is. We can't see God. And if you can't see God... You can't serve God. But then Jesus goes on to share another thing that could ruin a Christian's witness besides that which he'd been talking about. And he moves on to an important theme here related to the way we think of others, the way we judge others. Now, God's word may not prohibit examining the lives of others, but it certainly prohibits doing it in the spirit of what is when it's done unfairly. Unfairly judging others. Examples found in Matthew chapter 26. You don't have to turn there. Let's give me a, let me give you a quick uh, reminder what that story is about. The disciples are together with Jesus. Jesus is sitting there. A woman comes in and she's got this expensive jar of perfume. And she just pours it all over the feet of Jesus. She uses her hair and she's washing his feet with it. And the disciples are taken back and they're like, look what she's doing. What a waste of perfume. That could, that could have been sold. and We could have made money off of that. They harshly judged her for what she did. Jesus said what she'd done was a good work and it will always be remembered. See, they had this harsh, rash, unjust judgment. So in Matthew 7, Jesus says, don't unfairly judge others. Because when we break this command, this is what happens. We think the worst of others. Think about this when we unfairly judge other people. We think the worst of other people. When we break this command, we only speak to others of their faults. When we break this command, we judge an entire life, maybe by its just its worst moment. When we break this command, we judge the hidden motives of others. 
When we break this command, we judge others without considering ourselves in their same situation. When we break this command, we judge others without being mindful that we ourselves will be judged too. Jesus did not prohibit the judgment of others. He required that the judgment be completely fair and that we only judge others by the standard in which we would want to be judged by. He then gives an illustration of judging others, which again we sort of spoke on two weeks ago. An amusing picture, right? I'm standing here looking at your sin in your life. I've got this big wooden plank coming out of my eyeball. And I'm saying, you've got a little speck of sawdust in your eye. Let me get that out of there. Meanwhile, i got this big plank coming out, right? His disciples were probably amused by this. But Jesus is obviously trying to say something here. Listen, you, we all seem to be far more tolerant of our own sin than the sin of other people, aren't we? Oh, don't worry about the sin in my life when I'm going to point out yours, your little itty-bitty sin, and my big sin is protruding from me. We look at what somebody else does and we go so crazy, don't we? When yet in the same situation we find ourselves, we don't think it's such a big thing. It's okay if I do this, but if you do this, we do it all the time. Right? Parents, how many times have you looked at your kid and they said, they said a certain word? Like, oh, that's, a, that's not a word you should use. How many times did you use that word? Well, you got that log in your eye and you're pointing at that speck right down there. We do it all the time. And Jesus is sort of pointing us out, right? In John 8, we see the same thing looking at a speck in the eye while ignoring the plank on our own when all these men, these religious leaders, found this woman who committed adultery. They brought her before Jesus. They picked up stones and rocks. Because by law, they could stone her. They could throw these rocks at her until she's dead. They were ready to place judgment on her for her sin. And they go to Jesus and say, well, Jesus, what do you think we should do, right? They, they've got all these, these planks coming out of their eyes, right? Pointing at the speck in her eyes. And what did Jesus say? That you who is without sin cast the first stone. What did they do? They dropped the rocks, didn't they? They had no choice but to. Because they were all at fault as well. They were just as sinful as she was. Jesus isn't forbidding the pointing out of our sins or the faults in other people, because that's real, right? What he's saying is, this isn't where it starts. Not with pointing at everybody else. Maybe you need to look at yourself first, is what Jesus was saying. Now, if I was asked um, the kids in here right now, when they look up at the picture up on the screen, they see two different things. Okay? You see a microscope, right? And a mirror. Now, what's the difference between a microscope and a mirror? Just, I'm going to ask the kids real quick to tell their parents sitting next to them what the difference is between a microscope and a mirror. And adults, if you have no kids sitting near you, you just tell yourself real quick, what's the difference between a microscope and a mirror? you get about five seconds to do this. Ready? Go. I think you know what to do. You're like, you all know the difference, right? Go ahead and tell each other. It's okay. You can talk. You guys got your answers, right? Okay, here's the difference. The mirror, obviously, they both allow you to see objects, right? You look into one and you see your reflection. You look into another and you see that object magnified. We're all good on this, right? What if you can combine these two things? It'd be a great invention, right? They have them. It's one of those facial mirrors. Have you ever seen those before? Some of the times we go to places and they have these in the hotel rooms, or whatever. And I'm like, what is this? And I flip it, I'm like, whoa, 
That's a little too much of me right there, okay? Um, and and it's, it's like if you've never looked in one of those four, if you've got freckles, you can look in one of these things, and you'll see you've got freckles on top of your freckles with one of these things, okay? These things are just like magnify yourself big time, right? So here's the thing. What if God gave us one of these in a spiritual way, Okay? What if you could look like, look, God's like, here, I'm going to give you one of these. And you look into it, and it just sort of magnifies yourself and your sinfulness. A lot of us would be doing what? We'd like flip it over and cover it up with a blanket. It's like, I don't want to look at that anymore. But what if God says, I want you to do this? Before you start pointing the finger at everybody else and saying, they're the problem for all the conflicts in your life, why don't you first look in that mirror first and see if any of it has to do with possibly you? Because if we want Conflict resolution, or let's say reconciliation, we got to deal with it, don't we? I mean, do you really want to fight with people, or do you want to fix it? Because here's the thing: if you want to just fight with people, you're just going to have a mess your whole life. I would lean towards let's fix it. Let's fix it. Let's look at the log in our eyes. Let's get to the heart of the conflict. What was it that you or I are craving that we did not get? As James would say. What issue is at the root of our particular conflict? If there's nothing, and you've done that examination, great, move on. But if you're like the most of us, there probably is something. We have to ask, what is it? Is it that you wanted respect in your life and you're not getting it? Is it you want love in your life and you're not getting it? What craving is ruling you? Now, we could rate... Take that word, it's from James, and put a more biblical word in there and replace it with the word idol. But none of us wants to go there because then that sounds like idolatry. And the Bible talks a lot about that, right? Well, we don't want to worship idols and we have no wooden stones or statues in our our homes, right? We have no golden calves or Buddhas or anything like that, right? But what if God's saying, I'm not talking about those kind of idols. What about your job? What about your career? What about a sport? What about a person in your life? See, an idol is anything outside of God that we've placed our hope in to make us happy. My job will make me happy. Money will make me happy. A car, a person, relationship, alcohol, our phones, our electronics. Yes, even coffee, okay? We can go that far. Maybe we can't focus because all we want to do is have that object in our hand. I just, I just got to have it. I can't live without it. Go ahead and answer the, answer the uh, screen up there, okay? Finish that phrase. I can't live without my... What is it? If you are quick to put something in there, that's your idol. This is the part where I'm talking about, church, where we're sort of flipping that mirror and we're looking in and we don't want to look. If you honestly want to deal with conflict, we got to look. What is it that you can't live without? Because it, be, it can become an idol. When you see someone get angry, anger can be an indicator that that idol has been being poked or being taken away. And you don't like it because it means everything to you. How do they work? First, think about this. First, it's a desire to have something, right? And it can be healthy. There's nothing wrong with it. But when that desire becomes a demand, I have to win to be happy. I have to have my phone to be happy. I have to have this or that. And then when you are deprived of it, you get upset. 
It's an idol. It has become an idol in your life. Could our deprived idol be the cause of our conflict? Look in the mirror. Look in that mirror. Is part of the conflict me and my desire to have something so much that I'm upset with that other person because they have somehow poked or taken my idol? And when we begin to judge somebody, because this is what happens next, I sort of feel like my rights have been taken, or they're taking something that belongs to me, or I start to judge them. You know what happens when we judge other people? What does a judge do? They proclaim sentences, right? And then they punish. When we start to judge people, we then sentence them and we punish them. I'm not going to talk to them. I'm going to retaliate one way or another. In one way or another, we punish them. And our judging leads to punishing the parties involved. It's that simple. We strike back, right? We said we may flee or we may fight. It might be one of those two things. So let's review this real quick. Our innocent desires that we have can become idols. Those desires become demands in our life. And when those demands are deprived, it leads to judgment. Judgment leads to punishment. No longer is there room for a great relationship because there's a wall between us because we have conflict. Does that make sense? So look in the mirror first. What are the idols in our lives? What do you fear? What do you worry over? What keeps you up at night? Loneliness? Physical relationships? Money? Your pursuit of material things? Sport? Win at all costs? Your children? Jenny and I were talking this week. We were going for a walk. And she said, hey, what are you preaching on Sunday? And we were talking about it. And so we sort of had to talk about this one together, you know, like our boys, lover boys. Okay. But what if our boys aren't successful in their sports or in life? Is our life crushed because they lost a ball game? What if they don't get what they want? What if, what if we're playing a baseball game and they're on the mound and they don't get the calls? Oh, it's the umpire's fault. See, I've got to blame somebody, right? We've got to find somebody to blame because it can't be my kid because my kid's number one. And I want my kid to be successful in everything because that's what matters to me. You know what I'm doing? I'm making my child an idol. Maybe it's just the fact that they can't throw a strike that day and that's just the way it is some days. It just happens. It's okay. Just because your child fails doesn't mean you're a failure, parents. Sometimes it just happens. Sometimes we fail, right? But when we start blaming everybody else for something that's going on for here, we're making it an idol. We need to recognize what things may become idols in our lives. And we may not claim to be like the children of Israel with the golden calves, right? But how are we making idols today? First thing we need to do, if, if we've looked in this mirror, because church, again, I've got to do this just like you. I've got to do this just like you. So look in the spiritual mirror and say, what is it that I put so much interest in that I find my joy from this more than I find from God? First thing I need to do and you need to do, we need to repent. We need to ask God for forgiveness. Forgive us for placing our hope and our joy in a false God that can be quickly wiped out. It'll never, it'll never satisfy. 
they just lead to conflict. Then we need to replace that idol worship with the worship of God. God wants us to worship him and him alone. We can't be satisfied with just a simple relationship with the God of this universe. He is such a complex and amazing God, and he doesn't want just this little simple side-side, off-here-to-the-wayside relationship. He wants more from us. We must see God with a greater attitude of worship. So I'm going to encourage you and challenge you to play the bigger, better game with worship this week. Now, what I mean by that is, I don't know if you've ever played the bigger, better game. We played it in youth group a lot growing up. And then when I was a youth pastor, we played this game. Basically, um, we get into groups like three or four. We have somebody who can drive. And then we give them a penny and we say, go off. You've got about an hour or two to go find something bigger or better. So you take that penny, you go to somebody's house. Hey, I'm with a True North youth group and we're playing bigger, better. I need to trade this penny in for something bigger. Do you have something you want to get rid of? And I'll give you the penny and you can give me that. And they give you something. Oh, a pair, a pair of old shoes. Thank you. So I go to the next house with that pair of shoes. Hi, I'm with True North Church. I've got an old pair of shoes. Can you trade this in for something bigger and better that you don't mind not getting back? And they trade it up for something else, maybe an old heater that doesn't work, okay? So I just keep going and keep going. We played this game, and one time a group came back with a water heater. It was, it was pretty amazing. They started the penny and they came back with the water heater. It was like, I don't know how you guys, they had a pickup truck, so fortunately that was good. Another group came back, no joke, with a rowing boat. It was pretty awesome. They had a rowboat. Now, I've heard of bigger and better stories, but those are the ones I witnessed personally. And here's what I'm saying. Take your worship right now, whatever it is, and I want you to trade that in for something bigger or better. Start with maybe asking yourself, okay, what's my, what's my quiet time like with God? How much am I into God's word reading on my own besides Sunday morning? Are you opening up God's word on a daily basis? Do you have a Bible reading plan? How much do you pray? Besides, thank you, God, for this food. Amen. Okay. How much do you pray beyond that? Do you study in the Bible with a different book, uh, maybe a devotional book, maybe a study book, to learn more about your faith? How much are you worshiping by singing? And if you can't sing, listening to music outside of Sunday morning. A few, about a month ago, there was a song we played, I think it was by Mercy Me. And we played it, and it's like it's a toe tapper. It's like, this is one of my favorite songs. Okay, that was my song I was starting off every day that week. I pulled into Circle K, like, the next week. Pulled into Circle K, and I see this car over there, and I hear that same song. And they had cranked it up, and I'm thinking, looked over, and it was somebody that had just visited our church for the first time was on that Sunday. And they looked like, oh, hi, Pastor. I was like, love it, good song, you know. And it was like, they were just cranking it up. It's like, why not, right? Bigger, better. Take your prayer, Bible reading, whatever it means, whatever how you worship God, I want to challenge you. Make it a little bit bigger and better tomorrow. And the day after that, make it a little bit bigger and better. Because here's what happens. When you start replacing your idols with God, the idols shrink, God gets bigger. There's only so much room in your heart. And if your idols are occupying it, God can't. Turn to Matthew chapter 6 with me, please. Matthew chapter 6. We're going to look in verse 19. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. says this. Don't store up treasures here on earth, where they can be eaten by moths and get rusty, where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven, where they will never become moth-eaten or rusty, where they'll be safe from thieves. Wherever your treasure is, 
There your heart and thoughts will also be. Isn't that true? You might want to underline that. Verse 22. Your eye is a lamp for your body. A pure eye lets sunshine into your soul. But an evil eye shuts out the light and plunges you into darkness. If the light you think you have is really darkness, how deep that darkness will be. No one can serve two masters. You might want to underline this line. No one can serve two masters. For you will hate one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. I'm going to pause there. This is where our idols come into conflict. Whatever it is that you're pursuing in life, if it's not God, there's going to be conflict within your own heart, first of all, for space. You can't have two masters. Look at verse 25. So I tell you, don't worry about everyday life. Whether you have enough food, drink, and clothes. Doesn't life consist of more than food and clothing? Look at the birds. They don't need to plant or harvest or put food in barns because your Heavenly Father feeds them. And you're far more valuable to Him than they are. Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? Of course not. And why worry about your clothes? Look at the lilies, how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing. Yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for flowers that are here today and gone tomorrow, won't he more surely care for you? You have so little faith. Verse 31. So don't worry about having enough food or drink or clothing. Why be like the pagans who are so deeply concerned about these things? Your Heavenly Father already knows all your needs. Church, let me say that again. You might want to underline it. Your Heavenly Father already knows all you need. And He will give you all you need from day to day if you live for Him and make the kingdom of God your primary concern. So don't worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble is enough for today. When you look at Matthew 6, some of you maybe memorize. I read it out of the New Living Translation, but some of you probably memorize this. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you, right? Seek first what? His kingdom. Seek God first above all things. I don't know if you've noticed by now, I keep reminding you, but many of these messages on relationship have dealt with basically one thing ourselves we all, we all want to be fixing the relationships around us but it's always come back to one thing it's like maybe it begins with us so this morning i want to encourage you to examine yourself if there's an idol something that you're seeking more than god realize that might be part of the root of your conflict replace that love with a greater love for god church remember this is a lifelong journey just when you think you got one conflict solved and one relationship fixed, guess what happens? Another one pops up, right? Do you remember that game, Whack-A-Mole? Remember that game? If you've never seen it before, basically you got this big hammer and a mole pops up and you hammer it down. And as soon as you hammer it down, another one pops up, another one pops up. And all you're doing is you're whacking mole after mole after mole. Sometimes I feel like my life is like that. Isn't it? Christianity-wise. You know what I'm saying? All right, God helps me with this. Oh, now another situation arises. Oh, then God helps me with this and another situation arises. Let me say this, church. Do not give up. Do not give up in this. Our God is faithful. He is faithful to help us through this. And then I just got to stop back every now and then and say, okay, God, 
I'm tired of whacking them all. Can you help me? He's like, yeah, why don't you put down that hammer? Take a look in the mirror. You worshiping anything else besides me? Are you judging other people? Saying it's their fault when it might be yours? Think about it. Go ahead and pick that back up. Let me help you out. Work through this. But you can't do this alone. But you've got to get real with me first. And that's what he does. I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward. As they're coming forward, I, let me just, church, I'm going to just be really, really real with you, okay? I would love to say that I have this conquered. I would. I'd be able to love to say, hey, I used to be somebody that judged people, but I'm over that. I'm a judge-free person. I have no idols in my life. I'm golden, okay? But if I did that, there, my nose would start extending like Pinocchio, okay? Because I'd be a liar. I struggle with it just as some of you may struggle with it. And the amazing thing is, this sermon was written a few weeks ago, and I was sort of going over and polishing stuff and whatever, reading it through it. And, and God put something in my life yesterday that said, Oh, Rex, just to let you know, you don't have this done yet. You need to work on it. You see, we were getting on the airplane to come home, and um, we were one of the last groups to board. And as we're getting on, there's seven of us. And as we're trying to find our seats, you know, everything's pretty much taken. Um, it's, it's not assigned seating, so you just first come, first serve, find a seat. And so there's no way seven of us are going to all sit in like a couple rows next to each other. We're probably going to be spread out two here, two here, three here. And sure enough, and we're going all the way to the back. I mean, we're at the back row of the plane, okay? And there's a young lady sitting there, and so Jenny sits next to her, and I sit next to Jenny. And immediately, I began to judge her. I mean, I looked at what she was wearing, or lack of what she was wearing. That's part of my judgmental attitude right there. And her hairstyle, her jewelry, she's on her phone talking to her entourage. And uh, I took her as an entertainer, a singer, and something about her. She just seemed like, okay, she's, she must be an entertainer or she's really spoiled or something. Okay, again, judgmental attitude. Okay. And within a few minutes of takeoff, we're up in the air. I'm sitting there and I'm pulling out, I can't remember, I was pulling out a book or my phone or something. Jenny, all of a sudden I see this puff of smoke come from over here. I was like, I, I think I got whiplash. I turned my head so quick and Jenny looked and we're like, and she had an electronic cigarette. Um, she was vaping on the plane. We're like, and she's like, oh, I hope this doesn't bother you. And we're like, it's illegal. You can't do this on, on the plane. She's like, oh, I didn't know that. And then I, and the, I'm like, and yes, it does bother me. I was like, I can't believe I just said that the way I did to her. But I was sort of like taken back. I'm like, what are you doing? You know, and I, again, my judgmental heart, right? As, uh, as I sat there, she quickly put it away. Uh, we sat back. And in my judgmental heart, for the next three hours, I did my best not to look at her. Because like, just, I was frustrated. I can't believe I said, you know, acted the way. And then I was just like, oh, well, I'm better than her, right? And I'm just going to keep my head forward and call myself a Christian. You know, in spite of what she did, I, I judged her. And in my judging heart, you know what I did? I created a wall. Isn't that happens when we judge people? The result, I lost all opportunity to show her the love of Jesus. In that moment, I did I could have been a little bit nicer to her in my reply to her. 
I could have tried to ask her about her destination, what she does with her life, where she was heading and all that kind of stuff. But I didn't because I created a wall. By the way, I'm so thankful for my wife because as we landed and we had a long wait to get off and as we prepared to land, Jenny broke down the wall and um, she started to talk to this young lady and find out where she was going and started to have a conversation. We had a nice 15-minute conversation. But you know what I regret? It could have been a a three-and-a-half-hour conversation. But again, that's what happens when you're judgmental. Look in the mirror. What part of the conflict is my responsibility? What idols must I confess? Where must I increase in my worship of God to drive out these idols in my life? Church, these are questions we need to ask. We want conflict resolution. We want reconciliation with each other. These are the tough questions we have to ask. I understand that there's going to be conflict in our lives, that some of it is not your responsibility. It is because of somebody else. I get that. But there's a lot of it that we can go ahead and take responsibility for. So let's take responsibility for it. Let's ask God to help us in these moments as we look into that mirror and say, God, where do I need to change? Where do I need to change? I believe when we do that, the love of God has that opportunity to flow through us and His grace flow through us and to build relationships with people. And it's a beautiful thing when that happens, isn't it? Would you please stand? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord for this morning that you've given us, this day you've given us, this time you've given us in which we can worship you in song and truth and scripture and prayer. God, forgive us. Forgive me for those moments when we judge people unfairly. For those times when we want something so bad in our life that we don't treat people very well whether it's just a judgmental attitude or whether it's an idol in our life that's causing conflict, God, remove that. Replace that, God, with a stronger love for you, a desire to know you more. Help us, Lord, to make this a week of bigger and better. To pursue you more each day. To grow with you more each day to maximize your love and to minimize the idols. To maximize grace and to minimize judgment. We love you, Lord, and we know we can only do this through your spirit. So we ask for your spirit to do that in us. God, what an awesome God you are. We love you, Lord. We sing to you now.